if you want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. Our guest today is my friend and colleague, Phil Kidd. He earned his PhD in physics at Cornell, where he worked under Eric Segia and Nobel Prize winner Michael Young to model and study the effects of temperature fluctuations on circadian rhythms. He is now a postdoctoral researcher studying olfaction in the Laboratory of Neural Circuits and Behavior, headed by Corey Bargman. He is particularly skilled at merging the theoretical and experimental methods found within the field of neuroscience. On a personal note, Phil has on many occasions generously offered his time to me despite me not being in his lab or in any way connected to or affiliated with his research. His insights have been extremely helpful for me as a physicist attempting to transition into and navigate within the field of biology. In particular, we have enjoyed numerous conversations comparing and contrasting the way that physicists and biologists do science, how to bridge the gap between these fields, and why it is that they operate in the way that they do. In this conversation, we touch on large swaths of Phil's research and dig into how and why it is that physicists and biologists solve problems so differently. Without further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Phil Kidd. Thank you for coming here, Phil. Thanks for having me. And I'm just going to jump right into it. Great. What is a circadian rhythm? So, um, so there's an official definition, actually, um, which I'll get, I guess I'll get to in a second. But roughly speaking, um, it's a biological rhythm that has an approximately 24 hour period. That's actually what the name means. It comes from circa diem, you know, about a day. Oh, um, so the nature of that biological rhythm though, can be very different depending on the type of organism that you're, that you're talking about and circadian rhythms are present all throughout life. So, you know, pretty much all animals have them, all plants have them. Um, many, but not all fungi, uh, cyanobacteria, there's lots of examples. And so the nature of the rhythm can be very different in an animal versus a cyanobacteria. Um, so the official definition is that it is a biological rhythm with a period approximately, but not necessarily exactly 24 hours, but that is self-sustained. So it does not require any external input in order to, you know, oscillate, um, but that is, uh, so that's property one, self-sustained oscillation with a period of approximately 24 hours. Property two is that it should be sensitive to the environment, even though it doesn't require the environment. So it should be entrainable by things like light or temperature cycles. And the third property is that the period should be temperature compensated, which is to say, if you measure the period of the rhythm in the absence of any particular external drive, that that period shouldn't change very much over a kind of physiological temperature range. Um, and the reason that property needs to be specified is that that is an atypical feature of a biological process. So for example, things like embryonic development can occur at rates that are highly temperature sensitive. And that's not that surprising because chemical reactions occur at rates that are temperature sensitive and biology is chemistry at some level. Right. So, so I would, the circadian... I would expect the clock to increase speed or decrease speed yeah. In in the case of increased temperature or decreased temperature, but yeah. is what you're saying that circadian rhythms actually stabilize themselves against this feature of like kind of that's inherent to chemistry. That's right. So all known observed circadian clocks have a period that is sort of much less sensitive to temperature than you would expect 
based on kind of how other biological processes um, tend to work. So can you quickly just for clarification's sake, explain what it is about chemical reactions that increases or decreases with temperature? Or why sure. does they do that? Sure. Yeah. So so, you know, the kind of the um, the conventional picture is that, you know, for a chemical reaction to occur, for example, you know, two proteins binding to one another or an enzyme converting its substrate into a product, some energy barrier has to be crossed. And it's the height of that energy barrier that sets the rate at which the chemical reaction occurs. And if there's more thermal energy available, then uh, chemical species will be able to sort of cross that barrier more rapidly, you know, on average. This is that um, classic phrase, activation energy. And the yes, temperature exactly. increases the activation energy, which may, because things are moving around faster, so they're more likely to bump into the spot that they need to hit in order to combine or break apart. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you just take any chemical reaction, that chemical reaction will actually occur more quickly at higher temperatures. Right. And uh, so biology being a chemical system, what you're saying is that the assumption would be circadian rhythms would vary with temperature. Yeah. So first of all, how would you even, how do you even start? So we talk about the four F's of problem solving here. The podcast, of course, is called Solutions. And so the four F's are finding a problem worth solving. So you've just found a problem. Yep. You've talked about what the problem is. How do you frame that problem? This is the second F in such a way that it appears solvable. Like given that seemingly intractable problem, how do you make it tractable? So that's a good question. And it's the uh, way people have approached it for the case of temp circadian temperature compensation has actually changed a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of modern scientific field of studying circadian rhythms, which people would call chronobiology, um, has been around for now about 70 or 80 years. Um, so it, it very much predates, you know, the, like the, the modern era of molecular biology. Okay. So, so in the early days, people could observe that circadian rhythms are temperature compensated, for example, by by having a plant that has a circadian motion of leaves, say, and putting it in rooms that have different temperatures and observing that the period doesn't change. Um, but they couldn't, you know, they didn't know what the genes were. Um, they couldn't observe the molecules. They couldn't observe the chemical reactions um, involved. So the way that temperature compensation was studied originally was by kind of trying to come up with simple mathematical models of how you could construct something that would oscillate um, in a way that was dependent on chemical reactions, but could then be constructed such that its period wouldn't change. Right. So uh, this is very much so in the tradition of dynamical systems research. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you would try to get models that made non-trivial predictions that you could actually test, which you can imagine was very difficult at the time. And in fact, you know, not a lot of progress was made on the problem um, for many decades. So it was, you know, a pretty important open problem in chronobiology to even come up with one example of how temperature compensation could work. This is kind of the inverse problem that's difficult with, with science in general, which is it's one thing to create a model and then figure out what would happen under the assumptions of that model. It's a whole other thing to look at a system and try to ask the question, what types of models can account for this system? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and so then the approach eventually changed a lot in about the last 
30 or 40 years when people could start to do genetics and molecular biology and you know starting around the mid 80s through through the turn of the century the genetics and molecular biology of circadian clocks was worked out in considerable detail in several model organisms and so then you could do a very different kind of modeling where you actually we're using know. Model, we have a names, namespace error alert. We have used the word model twice in two different ways. So I think <laughs> it's useful to, to declassify those. So one thing is the mathematical model, right? Yeah. And the second is the biological model. Yeah. So what is, can you, maybe this is kind of a broad question, but can you define those two things and how they're different? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, if you're a circadian rhythm geneticist, let's say, you could have a model of the circadian clock, which it you know contains no mathematics. It's just a, a list of genes and their associated proteins and what those proteins are doing that leads to something a system that oscillates, right? And that's a model in the sense that it's sort of a, a abstract or or description of a real you know biological system. Um, but of course that that model in the sense of description can be converted into a mathematical model by writing down the chemical kinetics equations that describe the picture that the biologist has, has worked out. Um, and then finally you have the idea of the model organism, which is <laughs> right. Yeah. So that would be, you know, the fruit fly, um, or the mouse or, uh, uh, Arabidopsis, if you were working on plants or, you know, whatever, whatever, um, organism you've picked to, as as uh, as your example, you know, to study circadian rhythms or whatever it is that you study. And when you were studying this, you chose Drosophila for your PhD thesis in at Cornell. Yeah. So um, so circadian rhythms have been studied. There's sort of five, I would say, uh, main kind of uh, model organisms. Um, uh, one is Neurospora, which is bread mold. Um, and, and in Neurospora, you can observe the circadian rhythm directly because the bread mold will grow across the surface and it produces spores in a circadian fashion. Um, so then there are, are plants. I'll, I'll, I'll say Arabidopsis because that's a standard plant model organism, but people have studied circadian rhythms in a variety of plants. That's two. Let me keep track here. Um, the third one is cyanobacteria. Um, the fourth one is mouse and, and, and then there's Drosophila, but really the, the, the majority of the genetics and molecular biology of understanding the circadian clock was worked out in Drosophila. And it turns out that animal circadian clocks are, are all homologous to each other. So the Drosophila clock is extremely similar to the mouse clock is extremely similar to the human clock. And homologous, just so people don't think they're missing anything, just means similar. Yeah. Or does it mean something so, a little so bit more it, specific? It means similar, but there's a slightly more specific meaning when you're talking about genetics. Um, and the meaning in that case is that is that to a large extent, the genes are actually the same genes in the fruit fly and in the mouse in the sense that they have a common evolutionary or, or origin. So I can look at a protein in the mouse and, and, the, and the corresponding protein in the fly, and they are very similar to each other and derived from a common genetic ancestor. How do you even 
start to parse something like that out. If you're looking at two proteins and you say, how close are these? I think it's common for people to think about how closely two species are related, but I think it might be less common for people to think about how two different proteins are related. Yeah, so the way you do it is by looking at the genetic sequence that codes for the protein. Um, and you can see, um, you know, for example, the, the period protein, which is the original circadian rhythm gene that was discovered in Drosophila, but is also present in all other animals. And you can look at the sequence of that protein and you can see that the sequence is very similar in the fly and in the mouse. Um, you know, far more similar than could ex be explained either by chance or by some kind of convergent evolution. Right. Um, so there's homologous. Is there another way to measure similarity? Well, so, I mean, when you, when I'm, so, you know, when I'm using the word homologous, I mean that there's a common evolutionary origin, which is, which you, you have to have the sequence to demonstrate that, at least when you're talking about the level of, a, uh, at the level of a single protein. Um, but there are certainly other types of similarity. There's, you know, similarity at the structure and functional level. And in fact, the circadian clock in the mouse and the fly is not exactly the same. And there are some proteins that are present in both, um, animals that are doing slightly different things. And there are cases of proteins that have changed in a way where their structure is now more similar. Their structure and function is now more similar to a different protein um, in the fly than, than in the mouse, for example. Um, so the, the reason, the thing you're checking against is they could be from the same evolutionary origin or they could have convergently evolved. These proteins could have convergently evolved. Yeah. And there are awesome nature examples of this for instance, um, when you have these different, I think they're mites that get into ant hills and they start to have the same pheromone and like morph patterns as those ants, and then they sneak into the ant colonies and get to get fed along with their babies in order to just get the ants to deliver them food. Yeah. Or yeah. or they eat or they eat the babies. I can't remember exactly how it works. I'm gonna get Daniel Cronauer on here eventually. <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to explain all of that, but I just think it's interesting con to contrast that two things can converge, or they can happen. Uh, they can they can happen independently, or they can come from the same origin. Are they getting closer together over time, or have they been diverging over time? And that explains the similarity. I think one of the other examples of this, right, is the wasp looks very similar to the bee. Yep. Yep. But they're actually not very related at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's uh, something that occurs all throughout taxonomy and where genetics has actually changed people's views on the relationships between, you know, some species or, or classes or of animals or, or what have you, because once you can actually look at the genetic sequence, then you can really tell, uh, whether two things are, are related or whether they just look similar. But uh, this also is true for proteins, which I think is the interest, like the really interesting. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, and, and actually the circadian uh, clock is a, is, a, is a great example of this principle because <clears throat> the circadian clock of the fungus is very similar in its structure and function to the circadian clock of the animal, but as far as we know, is not homologous in the sense of the proteins having the same evolutionary origin. So I'll, I'll take a step back and just describe very briefly how circadian clocks work at the molecular level. So... In the fruit fly, there are two proteins called period and timeless. Um, period was the one that was originally discovered. Timeless was discovered simultaneously um, 
well, it was originally discovered in Mike Young's lab. Um, so um, those two proteins are, are produced. They uh, bind to each other to form a complex um, in the cytoplasm of the cell. And the complex then goes back into the nucleus and suppresses its own um, production. So period and timeless form a complex. They go back into the nucleus and they suppress the transcription of the period and timeless genes. And so the circadian clock, the oscillation, is produced by this negative feedback process, but the negative feedback takes a very long time. Um, so negative feedback plus time delay is like a classic way to get something that is unstable or that oscillates. And it turns out that um, in other animals, in mammals, for example, the period gene is there, but timeless has been replaced by a different protein called cryptochrome. Um, so in the fly, cryptochrome participates in the circadian clock, but as a blue light sensor, whereas in the mammal, it participates in the circadian clock as the binding partner for period, which is what timeless does in the fly. But in the fungus, none of these proteins are there, <clears throat> but the structure is exactly the same. Two proteins are produced. They form a complex in the cytoplasm. They translocate back into the nucleus and suppress their own transcription. So they independently come to the same mechanism, but with a completely different set of proteins. Yeah. So it's a little, um, <clears throat> I'll hedge a little bit. It's somewhat controversial whether these evolved independently, but it is certainly the case that whatever ancestral proteins were there when the circadian clock evolved, whether it evolved once or twice or however many times, they are no longer there in the fungus and in the, in the animal. They have been replaced by different proteins. Um, <clears throat> or maybe they were different all along and they evolved independently. Yeah, um, it is not controversial that the cyanobacterial circadian clock is an independent evolution because it works by a structurally entirely different mechanism. Um, but uh, eukaryotic circadian clocks all have this classic structure. And in some cases, there's sequence homology. And in some cases, there's not. So just to simplify what you're saying and restate, we have two proteins, timeless, period, they get produced, they bind together, and then they stop themselves from getting produced. Correct. And they do this and this, and then, so if they just get stopped from being produced, why do they get produced again in a cycle? So the way the cycle works is, <clears throat> um, so in the fly, cryptochrome also binds to this complex in the presence of light, and it causes the, the complex to be degraded. Okay, so in over the course of a normal day, here's what happens. During the, during the day, once there's daylight, a period and timeless protein are degraded. Okay, so they're basically not present in the neurons of the fly that are responsible for controlling the circadian clock, which means that the genes can be, can be transcribed. Okay, so RNA polymerase is producing messenger RNA from the period and timeless genes that is going out into the cytoplasm, but protein is not build, being built up because it's being suppressed by light. Okay. Then once it gets dark, those mRNAs get translated into protein. The period and timeless protein appears. It does, does not immediately suppress its own transcription. It has to undergo a, a, a pretty complicated set of chemical modifications before it can go back into the nucleus and, and perform its function of suppressing this transcription. But that happens over the course of the night. So then transcription is suppressed. Now the mRNAs aren't present anymore. The proteins aren't being made. They start to get degraded. 
then the sun comes up, finishes this process of degradation, and you start over again. So let's see if I have the new, the, the, the next iteration of the model down. Yeah. <clears throat> two, two proteins, timeless and period, pop out of the nucleus. They bind together um, and they suppress themselves. That's the first model. The second thing you're saying is that they keep suppressing themselves from being produced until blue light sensitive proteins come in and break them down such that they can get produced again during the day. Then once the light disappears, it takes a while for them to get back together to suppress themselves. So you kind of have a timeline as more and more of them are getting together to start suppressing their own production. So it's actually not immediate, like lights off, boom, pop together in. There's this long pathway to yeah. the getting them to, to bind together and enter the nucleus and prevent themselves from getting produced. That's right, yeah. Okay, I understand that. But then if it's all chemical reactions, how the heck is it temperature independent? Yes, so this is the question. Um, so there are kind of uh, several theories about how this could work. Um, uh, independent. I think I said dependent. I mean, I meant how is it? How is it not temperature dependent? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So one thing that that people have done, which is not what I did. This is actually, you know, you could call it the competing approach or something like that. Um, but it's a common approach, and it's not an unreasonable approach. <clears throat> is you 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 understand all these on some level anyway, all these steps that have to take place in order for the, the oscillation, the cycle to, com to complete itself. And you write down a model, this in this sense, a mathematical model that has the chemical kinetics of all these reactions that occur. And that model has a bunch of parameters. Um, you know, there are binding constants and rates of enzymatic reactions and so on and so forth, okay? And now you say, okay, well, what if I just, do a, a, an optimization, you know, in silico such that all these rates are kind of tuned to the right values so that if I change the temperature, some things get faster and some things get slower and overall it just cancels out. And in silico is the buzzword for what? Meaning you're, you're doing this on, a comp on your computer in the simulation of the mathematical model. Right. So you're, what you're saying is that you create a model that has a bunch of blank boxes, boxes for values. Yes. And then you're trying to find through some sort of algorithm what the best numbers to put in those boxes are such that you end up with a system that has these temperature independent properties that you're looking for. Yes. So you have the freedom to do this because these parameters are unmeasurable. <laughs> right. It's, uh, first of all, the, the, the circadian clock uh, of the eukaryote um, requires... Uh, transcription, translation, and chemical modification, and it, it really can't be reconstituted outside of the cell. Mm. And measuring chemical reaction rates inside the cell is very difficult. It's not impossible, but there's enough things going on that doing all these measurements is is something that we haven't been able to do yet. So has this method borne fruit? Well, so in a sense, um, it's clear that this approach can work, right? I mean, if you give me a model that has 20 parameters in it, I can tune those parameters so that the period ends up being independent of temperature, generally, right? If we, and so, so in that sense, the model it doesn't 
provide much constraint. <laughs> really, is that true? Every chemical kinetic system I could invent, you could tune in such a way? Uh, not not every, but what but, properties does it need to have? Do you know? So it doesn't really need to have any specific properties. It just needs to be a sort of complicated enough system where some of the parameters, when you change them, will cause that overall time scale, the period, or what have you, to to increase, and some of them will cause it to decrease, and then you just kind of tune your energy barriers so that everything balances out. So I can write down an example. Excuse me, of a system where you can't do this because because everything is just going one, one way. way. But if I, as long as I write down a sufficiently complex model of something like an oscillation, it will be possible to do this. So, okay. so I, you know, it's not that it's always possible, but it isn't surprising that I can write down a random model and have this be possible. I and see. the people who do these, do these models would agree with that statement. Got so, um, so what you have to do if you're taking this approach is you have to say, okay, well, I knew this would work, but what prediction can I make from the model that I've obtained that can then be tested by experiments so that I can rule this out? Um, and that's actually kind of where uh, my original work came in. Um, um, so there's, a, there's another approach, which was the approach that we took, which was what if we can write down a, a, an oscillator uh, model, mathematical model, or, or come up with a qualitative structure for an oscillator where temperature compensation of the period is a kind of fundamental property of this structure that in fact does not require fine tuning of the parameters. Okay. And the work that I'm talking about um, that, that started this was not my work, actually. It was, it was work done by uh, Paul Francois, who was a postdoc with Eric Sidja, who was my PhD advisor. Um, and they were interested in this idea in a much more general um, way, which is they wanted to, to come up with a way of, of um, producing models of biological systems um, that, uh, that had that sort of robustly exhibited certain properties without fine tuning of parameters. And their approach to doing this was, was in silico uh, evolution, okay? So, um, so, so I'll, I'll say what I mean by that. So let's say, for example, that you want to study, um, I'm trying to think of a good simple example that they, of, of one of the things that they did. Um, let's say that you want a signaling pathway that will report changes in its input, but will, but will return to a quiescent state when the input is not changing, okay? So this, uh, the classic example of this is the E. coli chemotaxis system. Um, e. coli bacteria wanna know when the amount of some attractive food molecule is, is increasing or decreasing, but when it's constant, they don't necessarily care because what they wanna do is always be tracking up gradients, okay? So uh, Paul's approach to modeling something like that is rather than trying to come up in his head with what might be a good model, he instead s writes a computer algorithm that starts with a random model and then has a, a function for evaluating whether that random model does what we want. In this case, that it responds to something changing but remains quiescent when the input is constant. And then he evolves the model on the computer. So Sorry, he, quiescent? Um, con that the output is constant. Got it. Um, so, so he he makes a starts with a bunch of random models, 
And then there are many ways that the models can be modified. Either parameters can change or components can be added or subtracted. And he allows them to evolve randomly by all these processes while constantly evaluating them and occasionally throws out the models that aren't as good, replicates the models that are better. It's basically like natural selection on the computer. Do these models have sex? Uh, they don't in the original version of the algorithm. No, I'll, I'll clarify uh, that. That sounds like a crazy question, probably. It, it, yeah. To the to a listener, not what I'm what I'm asking is if two models that seem to work can be combined in some way to create another model that also works. I would kind of expect that the answer is no. Yeah. So the answer, but... the answer in the in the I can't actually. I I uh, um I'm not sure what Paul is up to on on this avenue of his research these days. Actually, but in the original version of the model, they don't do that. Okay. Um, that m may very well have been an interesting thing to try. But this is this but is uh, asexual, so to speak. Let me see if I get this. They create they create a whole host of random models, and they keep stepping them forward to find the, so they make random models and they eliminate ones that don't seem to produce the results you want which are constant output given a depend no independent of temperature mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you find the ones that do seem closest to that ideal and then you use them as a template for generating more types of Ran more types of random models. That's right. And then you keep doing that for generations, killing off the worst ones, saving the best ones. So you're like breeding. It's like dog breeding, except you don't kill. Well, maybe they did, but um, <laughs> it's like you know breeding, yeah. but for selective breeding for yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Models. So okay, so um, so they they did this for a, a lot of things. They 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 studied like the vertebrate. Um, um, segmentation clock, which is the developmental pathway that that uh, leads to insects that have specific body segments, um, or in the case of vertebrates, to uh, to uh, vertebra actual vertebra in your spine, right? Um, um, and then they did it for circadian clocks, and in particular for temperature compensated circadian clocks. And there, the problem is tricky, okay, because uh, you can always make a chemical reaction that is not that sensitive to temperature okay so chemical reactions are generically sensitive to temperature but the how sensitive they are varies um, and in particular you can have a chemical reaction where all the rates are very fast except for diffusion okay so where the, where the rate limiting steps are all proteins diffusing into contact with each other and then they bind instantaneously as soon as they're close to each other. The idea being that they, they, they once they find each other in solution, they bind, but while they're want, but they wander around really slowly. Correct. So because and the reason that works well is that the rate of diffusion is much less sensitive to temperature than the rate of of energy barrier limited chemical reactions. I see. So diffusion and moving around doesn't change as fast as chemical reactions. Given that, that's right. That's right. Okay. So With you can find examples where that um, approach is used by organisms to produce temperature and sensitive functions. Um, one of the classic examples is, is uh, um, like the, um, well, various biological functions in in uh, uh, cold-blooded animals that that live in in 
environments with very large temperature fluctuations like tidal pools or things like that where sometimes the water is cold and sometimes there's not that much water and the sun is coming down and it's very hot and so they need to be able to survive over a very wide temperature range um, there are lots of other examples so the circadian clock can't get away with just that because we know that circadian clocks are not temperature insensitive across the board so the the period of the clock is not sensitive to temperature but the phase of the clock is sensitive to temperature so if i have fruit flies in an incubator where the lights go on and off on a 24-hour cycle then the flies will be um what they like to do is they're awake in, in at dawn and dusk they wake up actually right before the lights are going to go on they stay awake into the early morning they sleep through the day and then they wake up again in the evening right before the lights are going to go out and they stay awake a little bit past sundown uh, <clears throat> and this is what what fruit flies do in the wild also more or less so you can get the same effect with a temperature oscillation that you can with a light oscillation. You can keep the lights off all the time, but you can have a cycle of hot and cold temperatures and they will behave in roughly the same way with hot corresponding to the daytime and cold corresponding to the nighttime. Hmm. And th that is, uh, that's a riddle. So, so their circadian rhythm is able to respond to temperature changes while still remaining temperature compensated. So, so yeah, it's that's, not just a simple, so that which precludes it from being the simple case where it's just diffusion limited rate reactions. That's right. That's right. So that's the that's the puzzle that they have to solve by evolving on the computer. And and but by by the way is to, to clarify uh, just for, for people phase uh, like rate or um, phase is sort of like the not not phase. What what was the other word we were looking for? Uh, rate or t time of. I mean, I'll, so like there, so there's the period there's of an oscillator and, period, the, and the phase period, of the oscillator. Period in some ways is like tempo, right? Correct. So it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or faster than that. Yeah. And the um, and the phase is like which beat in the measure you're on. So that's right. Instead of one, two, three, four, you know, it, having that emphasis on one, two, three, four, you could be in a situation where you're going two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. That's correct. Um, yeah. So just like a musical metaphor maybe is useful. Yeah. 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 Or you can think of a metronome that's clicking back and forth. You know, did it start on the left and go right, left, right, right? Or did it start on the left and go, you know, something right. like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the case of the circadian clock, it's, you know, are we awake at noon or are we awake at midnight? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. So they did this and what they came up with. So, okay. Let me actually say one more thing. The, the other approach that I described where you tune all these parameters you get temperature sensitivity for free in that approach because the parameter the, you, you're you're allowing all of the chemical reactions to be temperature sensitive, and there's just this balancing act such that all the effects cancel out. But you will still generically have an oscillator that's able to sense and respond and synchronize to cycles of external temperature, even though the period doesn't change, because every part of it is still temperature sensitive. So I should have mentioned when I was describing that that is one of the big appeals of that approach is that it naturally solves this puzzle. If you want to make an oscillator that's sort of structurally temperature insensitive, then you have to solve the puzzle some other way. And it turns out that what happened in Paul's original simulations is his, his computer algorithm evolved 
networks that had two parts. One was an oscillator that was temperature sensitive, and the other part was a specific signaling pathway that had this property that I was describing, that it only responds to changes in its inputs, but it is does not respond um, or it produces zero output when the input isn't changing, regardless of what the value of the input is. So one sense it's taking the derivative. Exactly right, yeah. Or, or, or just to say that it's sensitive to, I'm trying to think of a common object in life where you, where you that's sensitive to differences, but not constant. Um, well, um, a good example that is probably familiar to people would be your sense of smell. Okay, your sense of smell is like this. Um, let's say that there's some like old food in your garbage can. When you walk into your apartment, you're immediately going to smell it. And you're going to be like, oh, it smells in my apartment. But then you get a phone call or you have to send some emails. You get distracted. And 10 minutes later, you don't smell it anymore. It's still there, but your, your sensory pathways have subtracted it out of your experience. Okay. So your sense of smell is much more sensitive to changes than to constant, um, input. Got it. Uh, that's a great example. So, so that's the kind of thing that they got out of their computer algorithm, except that the input was temperature. Right. Um, and so when the temperature is changing over the course of the day, that would shift the phase of the clock of the oscillator, but it wouldn't change the period. The period was hard coded in and was insensitive to temperature. Tempo stays the same, but emphasis or where you are in the, in, in the song changes. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that model. Okay. So, so I said, um, earlier on that, that what you have to do, um, when you're making these models is you have to come up with predictions that you can test. Right. So that model makes very different predictions than the balancing act model. Um, and the main idea is, um, let's go back to this picture of the circadian clock as a pair of proteins that get made and then modified, and then they go back into uh, and suppress their own production. There, you, there's a bunch of different processes that are happening. So a very sort of simple picture for the balancing act approach could be that transcription happens faster, um, and all the chemical modifications happen faster, but also degradation is happening faster. So that tends to, so, so the transcription is, is sped up and the modifications are sped up, but the buildup of the complex is slowed down because it's being degraded. And overall, all that stuff cancels out and you get no change in the period. But production is increased and destruction is increased. At and, the it same time. and it balances out. Yeah. Totally. So, okay. So, in that case, though, if I go in and, and actually measure the um, presence or the concentration of these various components of the clock over the course of the day, it's going to look different at different temperatures, right? I'll see that the mRNA is getting produced a lot faster in the morning, but that the protein isn't showing up as quickly as it should. And things will be shifted around relative to each other. And certain phases of the circadian rhythm will be longer while other phases are shorter, and it'll all cancel out. In the other picture, that won't happen um, because the internal clock is not sensitive to temperature. It's just being moved the phase is just being moved back and forth um, by temperature changes. So in that case, the prediction is that the relative speed of all these different processes doesn't change at different temperatures. Okay. And the, the kind of readout of this that, that we 
um, that we settled on that was measurable was to just look at the at, to just measure the concentrations of all these components over the course of the day at different temperatures. Measure the amount of mRNA, measure the amount of protein. And in the balancing act picture, the curves should look different at different temperatures. They should have a different shape. They're, they're um, you know, the point where mRNA concentration is highest um, should be a different length of time away from the point where protein concentration is highest, depending on the temperature in the balancing act picture. But in Paul Francois' picture, they should all, the shapes should stay the same. Okay. And so we, I did these measurements, um, which in some cases is easy. And in some cases is just like incredibly tedious and laborious. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, which Such is, that's, is science. that's how science works. Yeah. 99% perspiration as they say. Um, <clears throat> but our measurements confirmed the prediction of Paul's model which is that these curves don't look different at different temperatures. They keep, they keep the same shape and the, and, and the kind of, you know, the, the ordering and the arrangement of the different things that has to ha that have to happen stays the same at different temperatures. Got it. Um, and so these mathematical models, which are themselves simple and abstract, but they're, they're used to, to generate, um, Predictions that suggest new experiments where, you know, one conceptual picture versus another conceptual picture can be tested, you know, with data directly. So, so to summarize the, the, the version of the predictions from the version of model creating that is build a model, put black boxes, fill those boxes with numbers and change those numbers until it acts the way you want it to act, had a different prediction than the version of let's actually create a bunch of random models and evolve them forward, delete the ones that don't work and keep the ones that do um, with the understanding, with the added piece of information that there is a potentially a protein here that switches or there's a process or a signaling pathway that switches you from being in one phase to another upon a change in temperature, not just a change in light. That's right. Or, uh, you know, anyway, so... So this created a more constant shape for the curves for various chemicals inside of the cells. This, the, the former model that you were kind of competing against in a way, uh, predicted changes in these curves for these chemicals. And you found, in fact, that the chemical curves stayed the same. That's right. So that was that, that prediction from the model, the model that you were working on, the, evol the evolved version of the model had the same shape as what you actually found in experiment. That's right. Yeah. So not only have you framed the problem in a way, so the framing of the problem being the, uh, being kind of this new way of creating models, you've also figured out the solution to the problem by, which is the third F, figuring out the solution, figuring <laughs> it out, uh, third of our four Fs, that, um, you know, it really indeed does, real life really does track on with this, with this model, which That's is right. the framing of the That's framing right. of the whole problem. Yeah. So, uh, but in this process, you got to work with some pretty in incredible people, right? <laughs> yeah. You work with uh, uh, Nobel Prize winner, Mike Young. Yeah. So, um, so the whole project was a collaboration um, between Eric Sajan and Paul Francois, who were, who were, you know, pioneering this modeling approach 
and Mike Young, who has a circadian rhythm lab where we can do the experiments. Um, and um, I mentioned earlier, um, Mike, um, um, Mike Young, along with um, Jeff Hall and Mike Rosbash, who were the other two scientists that he shared the Nobel Prize with, they um, simultaneously cloned the period gene um, in the 80s. So period was discovered in a genetic screen by Seymour Benzer in the early 70s. And so he basically found fruit flies who had a mutation, um, point mutation, okay, in a single nucleotide. And, and their natural circadian rhythm had a different period. Um, so if you put them in the dark, normal flies will maintain an approximately 24-hour schedule of being awake and asleep in the absence of any external input. And Benzer found these flies that in some cases had a longer period and in some cases had a shorter period and that that was genetic. Okay, so they knew that... Um, they knew that it, you know, they had made these mutant flies, and it was, and this this behavior was passed on, you know, from generation to generation. But they didn't know where the mutation was exactly, or what it was exactly. Somebody had to go in and actually get the sequence and look at it, and that that's what um, Ross Bash and Hall and Young did. Um, and then and then um, uh, all three of them contributed uh, uh, a great deal to, to further figuring out the structure of the Drosophila circadian clock, um, which is what the prize was awarded for. So Mike discovered timeless. Um, um, collectively, they sort of worked out the whole pathway. Wow. Um, so that, that was work that was mostly done um, from the 80s through the 90s and, and was in a lot of ways kind of finish, finished by about 15 years ago. The, the really core components were all discovered and, and the sort of basic mechanisms were worked out. Um, but there were still lots of interesting problems um, um, to be solved. Uh, and temperature compensation was one of them. And so, so when I came along, you know, wanting to work on a collaboration between physics and biology people, I ended up in Mike's lab um, to do my experiments. Um, and at the time that I joined It's a good the place lab, to end up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great place to end up. I mean, so I didn't, um, I basically didn't know how to do anything um, when I started uh, in, the, in the lab. I mean, um, I took like, um, you know, like core lab, biology core lab when I was an undergrad. And actually, while I was at Cornell, um, I, I got kind of like drafted into being a TA for Cornell's genetics class. And they taught me how to do fly work because I had to then teach the undergrads how to do fly work. Um, so I wasn't completely useless. But most of this, like the data that's in the paper, um, was experiments that I had no idea how to do when I joined the lab. So you I have had to... your list at the beginning of your thesis of people who helped you in the, <laughs> yeah. in, in the core labs and whatnot is quite extensive. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had to learn how to do everything. Um, and yeah, the Young Lab was a great place for that. Um, I mean, of course, doing of the actual experiments, I mean, anyone who's worked in a, in a in a biology lab can tell you, you don't generally learn how to do the experiments directly from the, from the head of the lab. You learn from the other people in the lab. And there was a really great group of, of postdocs in the lab when I joined who, who taught me how to do everything. Um, you know, Mike's role was actually being someone who, you know, had an incredibly deep knowledge of the field, knew exactly kind of what papers we needed to read, what types of experiments we should consider doing, you know, gave a lot of kind of high level direction to the project, but who was also had the space and the funds and the uh, kind of um, devil may care attitude to let some random physics guy come into his lab 
and do this stuff that was, you know, pretty off the wall, honestly. Um, um, and of course, you know, it, it was important that Eric and Mike, you know, have been Rockefeller professors for a long time and had a relationship and knew each other. Right. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of how it all ended up happening. Marcelo um, always jokes in this regard that, or I think Marcelo got this from someone else. I can't remember who though. That every every biology lab is a theorist heading a group of experimentalists. Yeah, that's a very good description of what it's like. And um, you kind of work in biology, unlike physics, you work your way from being an experimentalist up and up and up until you become kind of the theory head of the lab. And you're no longer you're designing experiments, but based on kind of your hunches or theories as to what you've seen before and your then your knowledge of the body of literature. Um, but this is a very clear case of theory from a theory group to experiment an experimental group. Yeah. Maybe you can comment on this interplay between theory and experiment in biology and how it differs from your experience and that interplay between theory and experiment in physics, because I know that's something we've talked about a decent amount at like the faculty club and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just about because these things, because that's a common experience, I think um, of like missing that beat when transitioning between physics and biology, because they are so different in the way that they manage these, uh, yeah. these intricacies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the interaction between theory and experiment in physics and biology is very different. Um, so in physics, um, in physics, the, as in biology, the theorists and the experimentalists are, are different people. Um, but in physics, uh, it's, I should say that this is, these are my opinions yeah. as someone who has worked in these areas uh, and there's, other, there's other not, people. There's not that many people who have worked in both. Other people may have different opinions, but yeah. Totally. Um, uh, the world according to Phil. In physics, theory is able to play a role that it really can't play in biology. And the reason is that in physics, it's often possible to make precise quantitative predictions from pure theory. Okay. I mean, there are many, many classic examples of this, right? I mean, one of the famous stories that uh, you have to tell if you spent any time at Cornell, like I did, is is Hans Bethe, um, who who went to one of these famous conferences of people working on quantum field theory, um, and on, on the train on the way back to Ithaca, um, using his notes from from people's talk uh, talks, you know, at this conference, was able to calculate um, what the quantum electrodynamics prediction was. For the for the for the position of a particular spectral line of hydrogen, and see that the prediction is quantitatively exactly right up to a certain level of predict of of uh, precision, and he did this you know with a pad on a train, right? Right. Um, I always find I, I always refer to this as calling your shots. Physicists <laughs> can call their shots. Yeah, they can call their shots, and and that this is what high energy physicists do all day, right? The 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 theorists calculate, um, um, you know if the Higgs boson is present and it has this mass, you should see exactly this effect in this experiment. And then the experimentalists can go and they can see that exact effect in that experiment. Um, not all of physics is like that, but that's a fairly common phenomenon in physics and not only in high energy particle physics. Um, it becomes less so as it gets more complicated, though. I feel like this is less the case in condensed matter. It is less the case in condensed matter. Absolutely. You're, Which you're, is you're, more your predictions particles. are... Um, your predictions are less, you know, specific numbers and more you should see a curve that looks like this or a thing that scales in this way. But there are still quantitative predictions. And so theorists um, can sit in their offices and make models and give 
numbers to experimentalists that are very useful to the experimentalists. And, and the experimentalist's goal is to then test these theories, um, <clears throat> to directly test the predictions of the theories. Um, and both of them are making discoveries, right? Um, uh, Paul Dirac can write down a model and say there must be this thing called the positron, and then the experimentalist can go find it. Um, in biology, I hope I don't offend too many of my theorist colleagues by saying this, but in biology, theorists really don't discover anything. Um, they can suggest things. I mean, it's not, I'm not, it's not that different from Paul Dirac saying there has to be a positron, but ultimately discoveries in biology come from experiments, um, because biology is just too difficult and too complicated for a guy in an office with a pad to make, um, a quantitative prediction. You can't do it. There are exceptions, but they are very rare. As um, in, just the game is harder, so it's less yes. right. It's it's more of a complicated system. Yes, there's more interacting particles because there's more. In, you know, I, I always think of it as you have like the mo Where is the easiest place to call your shots? Well, it's particle physics because <laughs> yeah. that is single particle interactions. You're dealing with maybe a few multi-particle interactions, but you only have so many players in the game. Yeah. The more players you have in the game, you end up at condensed matter or condensed matter physics or uh, where you have to deal with fluids. And there you're already running into issues, right? Because fluid dynamics is chaotic yep. and you have yep. these difficulties predicting all sorts of things. And then finally you land yourself, if you kind of step yourself up in complexity, you end, end up finally at biology, which are huge macromolecules encapsulated in cells that have, and, and you're dealing with many, 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 uh, scales, so both at the t temporal level and at the size level, and all of these are interplaying with each other up and down the web of complexity, and you're just past the point where you can expect that your theories are going to turn out to be correct, because as the complexity of the system increases, the number of models that could explain the system increases also. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and, you know, I'm not suggesting that theory isn't valuable in biology. Theory is very valuable in biology, but it has a different role. Right. Um, and the role of theory is not for me to sit in an office and, and do calculations and come out and say, aha, this thing must be the case. The role of the theorist in biology is, well, it's two things. Um, it's to, it's to help, um, uh, the, their field to understand complex data and to kind of um, get a concept, put a conceptual structure onto complex data. And then it's to ultimately to suggest new experiments. Um, that's really what theorists in biology do. Uh, I was told a great quote after a lecture at one point when I was asking about this, which was that theory, I can't remember, this guy was at Cold Spring Harbor, great lecture on olfaction under software. I can't remember, something about hash sorting. It was really cool. But um, he said that theory is the way to connect what you measure to what you care about. Yes, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, so, you know, our example was this, the measurements that I did, which were, um, uh, using um, luciferase, like bioluminescence-based transcriptional reporters to measure transcription and using Western blots with antibodies to measure the protein concentrations. The, these experiments could have been done 20 years ago, okay? 
But the, who would have cared? And they were they could be done by someone who was frankly a complete amateur at doing experiments, i.e., me. Um, they weren't difficult experiments to do, but they were experiments that it didn't occur to anyone to do because it took this um, it took this idea that came from Paul Francois's work for us to realize that this experiment was going to give useful data on this phenomenon of temperature compensation and also not only that it would give useful data, but that it told us how to understand the data that we were going to get, how to interpret it. Okay. And so the model, Paul Francois's model, the thing that came out of that computer looks nothing like a circadian clock. It, it's, it's not a circadian clock. It's, it's an oscillator that has an entirely different structure, right? It isn't a model of the circadian clock at all. It's a model of temperature compensation. And even the models that that the other people working on this were doing, the models that, that were intended to show that balancing of chemical reaction rates could be a measure, they were often based on kind of a general picture of what the circadian clock does, but they're not precise models either. They can't possibly be. The system is too complicated. I mean, you can make a model that has period and timeless and they get transcribed and they bind and after a while they go in and repress their own transcription, but you're already leaving out dozens of other proteins that are involved in the processes, kinases and phosphatases that are modifying period and timeless, the cryptochrome that's binding to them. The complex has and, multiple and the, components, you know. The bane of all theor theoretical biologists early, I think, on existences, mine included, was that I would present simple models and they would I would get, wait, but have you considered, have you considered, what about this thing? What about that thing? And it's true to say that it's it's you can't account for all the things that could be changing it and for that reason your models always could be wrong that's right so yeah so actually modeling every single reaction and every single component of the Drosophila circadian clock is is quixotic to the point of being um useless you can't do it and and because of that actually making your model more complicated in order to more precisely match the real biology actually makes the model worse not better right it makes it hard to understand what your predictions mean and yeah it's exactly it's overfitting um you know it's a general lesson that like if i write down a model with enough parameters in it and i fiddle around with the parameters i can make the model do anything i want anything okay so the model's not useful anymore it doesn't make any meaningful constraint so even though those other models where people were doing this balancing of chemical reaction rates were sort of based on a, a simple picture of what the circadian look, clock looks like, they weren't intended to exactly, you know, no one was trying to derive the rate of binding of period and timeless from one of these models. That would be completely silly. Um, what they were doing was they were showing that a certain type of mechanism could work. And that's what Paul Francois's models were doing too, even though they, they look even less like the circadian clock. So it was a virtue of the models that they were simple and easy to interpret. And in fact, that they cannot make any quantitative predictions whatsoever. So in that sense, they're completely unlike quantum electrodynamics, which makes extremely precise quantitative predictions. And this is this is a game I've always been playing with, or, or, or kind of a thing I've been playing with in my head, is the idea of qualitative mathematics. And I've been very cheeky about talking to people about qualitative mathematics where people, I think, grow up thinking math is only and could ever be quantitative, and that math is all about numbers, but that indeed sometimes math is about structures and shapes, and that is more qualitative in a, in, in a lot of ways, and that the qualitative components of a mathematical model can be indicators for future directions, 
of biological experiments, for instance. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's an important point because, you know, I said that the experiments that I did, you know, could have been done by anybody, but were done by us because we had the models guiding us. Um, but, but it was also very important that, that I was in the circadian rhythm lab where people knew what they were doing, not only because I didn't know how to do a Western blot. I mean, lots of people can teach you to do a Western blot. I don't recommend it, frankly, but, um, you know, we had to do it. But, you know, so we, when, when we were originally looking at these models, Eric and Paul and I, we had ideas about how to do the experiments. And I can tell you that all of those ideas were wrong. Okay. All of idea, all of our ideas about how to do the experiments were bad ideas. Okay. And we went into the lab and they were able to tell us that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You have to do this way and this way. And in a sense, actually, because I moved to Rockefeller and this was my project before I moved and all of the ideas that we had about how to actually do it were wrong. We, we, we were a, a little lucky actually, right? Because it turns out the things that we wanted to do were possible to do just in different ways from what we thought. Um, and the people in the lab were able to sort of guide us into doing it in the right way. And this is also another one of the great difficulties <clears throat> of being a theorist in biology, right? Where you're, where you, so in physics, if let's say that 90% of, or even 50% of physics theories that get published are right. Let's just, I'm just using this as an example. I don't sure. actually think that that's the number, but yeah. let's say 50% are right. Well then in that case, if when a good theorist with a good reputation posts out, puts out a theory, everyone rushes, all the experiments lists rush as fast as they can to try to confirm that theory. Because then they get to be the one who publishes that paper and they get the glory. Yeah. So in and so so you don't have to do much convincing as a theorist in physics. You just kind of put the paper out there, you lob it out there, and you wait for the all the experimentalists to jump on the paper and try to get the thing proved. Whereas in biology, if your theory only has a much lower percent chance of being correct, at least as interpreted by the field, and probably kind of in some ways true, and not even just correct, but like qualitatively useful. Um, and experimentally tractable, you don't have a bunch of people rushing to confirm any sorts of theories. And in fact, what you have to do as a theorist is kind of socially maneuver and convince people that your idea makes sense and then get them to run those experiments. Is that, do you find that to be true? Like this so, is the pain of all theoretical biologists is trying to convince experimentalists well, so, to do the experiment you think needs to be done. Um, so I, I uh, convincing isn't the way I think about it actually. So so, so what you're saying about physics is right. Theorists make theories and experimentalists often then just test the theories that the, that the theorists made. But the reason that that works is, is that it's a lot easier in physics for the theorists and the experimentalists to already be on the same page about what they want to figure out, right? Everybody knows that they want to figure out um, how to make superconductors that are superconducting at high temperatures. And so the theorists will make models of superconductors where they can calculate the transition temperatures and make predictions and the experimentalists will test those models and everyone is in agreement about what they need. In biology, that's much more difficult for the theorists and the experimentalists to uh, know what needs to be, you know, what they want to do. And so actually, I, the way I think of it is it's actually, it's the theorist's job to understand what the experimentalists want and what they can do. Just as much as, as, as it's your task to convince experimentalists that your idea deserves to be tested. Both things are, are both are valid ways of, um, of approaching scientific problems, but 
you know, I said that we were a bit lucky that it turned out that our measurements were possible to do. So, you know, what I think um, was important and valuable about the way this project was carried out was that I was in the lab doing the experiments and I was in the lab doing the theory at the same time. Um, and so we could develop the theory um, in response to what we knew about what the experimentalists were telling us about what was possible. And, and in fact, most of the time, what I was directly figuring out was possible or not possible myself. And um, that tight loop is actually really Yeah, the tight important. loop is really important. And it's a lot. I mean, physicists have the tight loop, too. It's just easier for them to have it because of the nature, because it's systems that physicists study are so much simpler. In biology, it's much more difficult. Um, and that mm. kind of explains to me why it ends up being that you work your way up as an experimentalist to the point that you're so, so familiar with your specific subfield that you can actually start coming up with theories that also are experimentally tractable as yes. the same person. Yeah, And yeah. so it explains to me in a sense why it is that in biology you have what is kind of a theorist with experimental background at the head of a lab full of experimentalists that are working their way towards potentially yeah, um, yeah. getting to that point. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, there's a role in that ecosystem for people whose training was in theory, was in mathematical modeling or computer simulation or, or things like that. But I do really recommend to people who are interested in getting into theoretical biology, who are interested in mathematical models or applied math or programming, but who are also interested in biology, you know, learn the theory, do that, be a theorist, but spend some time in a lab. Um, you know, you don't have to actually produce publishable experimental data. <laughs> You just have to get in there and do some stuff and kind of understand how difficult certain things are and also um, understand um, from close interaction with people doing experiments what they want and what they're interested in. Um, you know, there's a lot of theorists out there who like they make a, they make a model of some biological system and then they. Um, uh, they kind of poke the model to make some predictions. And then they write a paper where they describe the model and they're like, and the model predicts this and this and this. And uh, uh, no one cares because the these are just, you know, like they needed to come up with some predictions of the model so that it could be tested and they did. But they didn't come up with, um, you know, their predictions are not things that are independently interesting to test. They're just tests of the model. And the model on its own has no value at all, right? The point of the model is, to guide the experiments that will actually discover things. Right. Um, and so the model has to be designed with the goals of the experimental community in mind because they're the ones actually figuring stuff out. Right. Um, <clears throat> um, and, you know, I think there are a lot of areas of biology where um, there's a, like, pretty healthy um, interaction between people doing theory and doing experiments where these goals are actually achieved and it's becoming more and more common in all areas of biology, but it's still a work in progress. Um, and you know, there, are, um, there's work to be done on both sides of the, of the divide, so to speak. I don't want to actually call it the divide. Um, but you shouldn't think of it that way, but, um, <clears throat> but you know, um, it's going to be important in the 21st century for people who want to do experiments to also have some background in in a little bit of math and a little bit of simulation so that they can communicate with theory people and also for theory people to actually know what's going on in the labs so that they can not be useless, basically. Right. By, I, I, I made maybe a controversial tweet 
a while back where I said, <laughs> "Oh no!" Uh, what did I say? I think I said, uh, uh, "If you if you're going into biology because you don't like mathematics, you should probably rethink your career choices." <laughs> Uh, yeah, everybody should like math a little bit, I think. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I was being cheeky. I think that I think there's a lot of reasons people don't like I, I my follow up tweet was there's a lot of reasons people don't like math. And a lot of it has to do with bad education and like trauma surrounding the kind uh, of math yeah, culture. Yeah. And et cetera. I, I, I so like that. there's a lot of asterisks <laughs> to that. But basically fine. You know, I think I, and, and, and also I should say if you're trying to become a theorist because you look down on experiments, <laughs> like also reconsider your career choices. Like realize how difficult experiments are and get your hands dirty. I'm trying to do that desperately. I'll let you know. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, it, been, I haven't been given the green it, light. It, yet. it is a it is a fairly painful process. I mean, I I don't know. Some sometimes when I'm doing experiments and they're failing and it's frustrating and and you know which is all the time, right? Um, you know, I think to myself, I'm like, man, you know, this experiment stuff. It's like it's like real work. <laughs> Like, so like, I think, oh, like maybe I should, maybe I should just go back in my room and just produce useless mathematics, you know, like, um, yeah, because, um, yeah, because I, I always joke about the fact that as kind of a, as a, as a theorist, a lot of your work, if you're just a pure theorist, a lot of your work is just cognitive. It's just sitting and thinking about things and playing with ideas. But yeah. like, sometimes it's like, you actually just need to go in and get something done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But speaking of which, updates. So now now you have transitioned and you're in the lab of Corey Bargman. Yeah. Um, and um, who is head of the Chen Zuckerberg Foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Science cool. Foundation. Yeah. Um, so um, so it's a, a neuroscience lab and our, our model organism is Sanoreptitis elegans. Um, which is a nematode about a millimeter long round worm. Um, and the reason people study these, um, these worms is that it's one of the simplest animal brains that we know of. Um, and, uh, uh, all three words in the phrase simplest animal brain are loaded, slightly (laughs) loaded words. Um, Um, so you can easily find an animal whose nervous system is simpler than the nematode nervous system. Um, things like coral and jellyfish, um, they have these kind of diffuse nerve nets, um, um, that are definitely simpler, but they're in a sense, not really brains. Um, they don't have what I would call non-trivial cognition. Um, uh, their behavior is more similar to kind of like, uh, like a paramecium. Um, the nematode is not like that. The nematode has central processing in its brain. It has sophisticated animal behaviors, things like, um, foraging, um, rudimentary learning and memory, um, mating in many cases, Sanoreptitis elegans themselves are mostly, um, selfers, they're hermaphrodites, but many nematodes mate and C. elegans also will mate under certain circumstances. Anyway, my point is they they have sophisticated, how, how do, how do they mate by the way? Uh, so C. elegans, each, each, uh, animal has both sperm and eggs. So fertilization occurs internally, um, and the offspring are, are genetically identical to the parent, but occasionally they can produce males that have sperm only, and the males will mate with the hermaphrodites. Um, it's a, um, generally done as a stress response actually. Um, but other types of closely related nematodes are obligately sexual. So they just have males and females like most other animals. Don't they, don't they do some sort of jousting? <laughs> so, so yeah. So, uh, uh, one might call penis jousting, uh, 
uh, uh, sea elegants, hermaphrodites, generally speaking, do not want to mate. Uh, they would rather produce their own offspring. So the males kind of have to work um, to mate. Um, well, I, I, there's a postdoc in Corey's lab that is an expert on this. This is what she works on. Cool. Um, so maybe maybe a topic for a different day. You should definitely her. have her on if she wants to do the podcast. It's fascinating cool. stuff. Um, in any in any case, though, yeah. So there are animals that have brains, right? But they're very simple, and they they're animals that have kind of sophisticated animal behavior. So that that's why we study them. And the reason I got into this. There, well, there's a, a lot of reasons, but one of them is I, I discovered in Mike's lab that I do not like biochemistry and I'm not very good at it. I did just hundreds and hundreds of Western blots and we got the data and that was how we had to do it and it was worth it, but I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, I discovered in the course of working on other projects in Mike's lab that I do like imaging and behavior and that's what people do to work on nematodes is imaging and behavior. Um, and Corey's lab in particular has done a lot of pioneering work on imaging neural activity in nematodes um, using fluorescent calcium sensors. Um, and the other reason I got into it is that I mentioned earlier that some fields in biology have healthier and more robust theory and experiment collaborations than others. One of the fields that has always had theorists in it is neuroscience. And theoretical work has been extremely important for a lot of major discoveries in neuroscience. And the theorists and the experimentalists mostly respect each other and they work together. And um, um, it's, it's been good, basically. But, um, you know, theory people who work on neuroscience, they want to understand consciousness and cognition oh. and all this stuff, which I, that stuff is great. I have nothing <laughs> bad to say about that. I might. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fine. Um, but, but they mostly tend to work on, um, on humans and monkeys and mice, which, again, that's great. Um, but those systems are extremely complicated, and my um, my background has led me to have the completely the opposite intuition, which is that if you want to apply theory to a biological system, you want the simplest system possible. Yeah. Centaureptitis elegans, uh, three hundred and two neurons in the entire animal. Um, for reference, there's about eighty billion in a in a human brain. Um, <clears throat> so. To me, it was the perfect system to apply theoretical ideas while doing the kinds of experiments that I like doing, which is watching animals crawl around and do stuff and not mashing proteins together. Um, um, so yeah, that's um, that's what we're doing now. You published a paper on olfaction. Not yet. Well, okay. So you I, one. I am uh, I am I am an author on a paper. So that you know, I I I uh, I feel slight. I, I feel. Um, Slightly silly using my own work as examples of good experimental theory collaborations, but I'm the one on the podcast, so for this episode, so we'll we'll do it. Oh, but, and by the way, at the end, what I'm going to ask you is who you recommend that I interview next. Oh, good. Yeah. So, yeah, so okay. I'm going to get your recommendation next. That way, I can ladder myself to the next. Okay. Episode. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I'll apologize to those people later, but <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, so yeah. So the paper you're thinking of um, um, was a project. Uh, spearheaded by uh, Chung Lu, who's an electrophysiologist. So um, electrophysiology is the um, art or science, uh, probably both, of, of inserting an electrode into a neuron and directly measuring electrical um, dynamics of the neuron. Um, it was, you know, the only technique for experimental work in neuroscience for the, you know, up until about 30 years ago. Um, and continues to be used very fruitfully to measure 
things in monkey brains and mouse brains, um, um, fly brains, you know, and so on. It is a um, much less commonly used technique in nematodes for two reasons. One is that imaging is easy in nematodes because they're small and transparent. Um, and the other one is that electrophysiology in nematodes is extremely challenging. Their neurons are really small. And a nematode to a first approximation, you can think of it as kind of a bag of protoplasm, okay? It has this like uh, tough but flexible cuticle exterior and, and then just like, a, a, just like a bag of cells inside it that are kind of floating around. So it's really tough to, to open up that cuticle and get a neuron out and get an electrode into it without just completely mashing everything beyond recognition. Um, so Chung Lu is one of the few people in the world that can do this. Um, do worm surgery. Do worm surgery, yeah. And um, there's sort of a third reason that a lot of electrophysiology hasn't been done in, in nematodes, and that's that their neurons were for a long time thought to have very slow dynamics compared to other animal neurons. So if you've ever read anything about neuroscience, you're, you've probably encountered the idea of the action potential, okay? So, the, so most animal neurons make these narrow rapid spikes that are optimized for reliable transmission across long distances, right? I want to know very quickly if my hand is touching something hot. So this action potential has to travel from my fingers up to my brain and back again, actually, very, very rapidly. Um, <clears throat> nematodes are small. They don't need that. And, if, and people who have observed their neurons have found, had found that they don't have any action potentials. Um, they, they, they do have them in their muscle cells, actually, but in their neurons, people thought they didn't. So, so the project was Chung discovered that a certain sensory neuron actually does have action potentials. And um, um, not only that, but that they seem to have sort of non-trivial phenomenology in a way that suggested that they had a real role in information transmission and behavior. And so it's a sensory neuron and you know, without getting into an excess of detail, basically what Chung found is that these action potentials could be generated by um, slowly varying stimuli like ramps um, or waves of input um, and that the action potentials would be generated with a timing and a frequency that was reporting, you know, kind of the the rate of change of the input. And, and because this is a sensory neuron that senses attractive odors associated with food, we think that it's playing a role in allowing worms to track sources of food in a way that's actually very similar to the way that E. coli do it that I was mentioning earlier. And so Chung did a ton of experiments to figure out how this neuron works, um, what the specific ion channels are that are involved in making these action potentials, what their properties are, how they interact. And he had a model in not in the mathematical sense, but in the sense of a conceptual qualitative description of how everything in this neuron worked. And it was a good model. It was consistent with all the data. It made sense. <clears throat> and my, you know, relatively minor role in the project was to convert it into a mathematical model and show that, that it all hung together when you actually did the calculations. Um, and that's what I did. So I just took all of his data, turned it into computer code, wrote down the equations, and simulated it. There was, cool. there was a little bit of extra work. There were a couple of things that we sort of didn't know from the experiments that had to be worked out in the model. But it was 90% just kind of checking what Chung already knew, actually. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that's like <clears throat> what you want to do all day if your job is theory. 
but it's still very important, right? Um, sometimes experimentalists have systems, are studying systems that are complicated enough that in order to test the ideas, you sort of need to to do some non-trivial mathematical modeling. Um, and, and there, the, the role of the model actually really was to be as realistic as possible. Um, and that's something that is often not, that you can't do. Like I was saying earlier, single cell neuron biophysics is an exception um, where, you know, this, these electrophysiology techniques are accurate enough and you can really measure everything and you can really make a simulation that's actually realistic. And there's a long history of that, right? With the squid giant axon and, yeah. and, the, and the Huxley, what is the Hodgkin, Hodgkin and Huxley. Huxley. Yeah. Um, yeah. So models. Hodgkin and Huxley, two, two British biophysicists, um, um, along with their colleagues, like really did measure exactly what was going on in this, in this squid neuron, the squid giant axon. Um, and, and produce a highly realistic mathematical model that replicated their data, you know, to a high degree of accuracy. It's really the closest thing to quantum electrodynamics that you can find in biology is that kind of work. Um, and I mean, that was just, you know, it was absolutely revolutionary. Like all of neuroscience comes, comes from that basically. Um, um, <clears throat> and so this, this was sort of a, you know, a variation on the theme many years later of getting, of getting a similar idea to work in, in these C. elegans neurons. Um, I mean, you know, now that we have the model, we can use it to test out ideas, right? So it's, you know, if you can get such a realistic model, you can say, oh, well, what might happen if we do this experiment or what might happen if we do this experiment or what might happen in this neuron if the worm experiences such and such sensory stimulus. Um, so it's useful beyond its original purpose of kind of confirming a certain experimentally derived picture. Um, and um, actually both Chung and I have sort of moved on to doing other things at the moment, but this, this uh, studying this neuron AWA is, is, uh, is, is not a dead uh, field because um, the electrophysiology experiments, while they're very, very good for figuring out the detailed properties of the neuron, they're not so good for figuring out um, the kind of um, the, uh, uh, the like ecology, if you, if you want to call it that, you know, what the neuron is actually doing in the living animal. Cause the animal is pretty close to dead when you're patching the neuron, it's sliced open, it's glued onto a slide. It's got an electrode stuck into its brain. It's not doing anything. And in fact, all of its normal sensory functions are compromised by this preparation. So if you want to find out how the neuron is responding to realistic stimuli from the environment, you can't use electrophysiology as your method. You either have to use imaging, which is difficult. It's difficult to image such rapid dynamical phenomena, or you have to use the model. Got um, it. And we, we, we do both. But uh, yeah, that's sort of what that project was about. Um, so final, final few questions. Any, right. Is anything on the horizon for you? Is there anything you're excited about that you're kind of working towards that you think is cool that you want to bring up that I didn't, wasn't able to get from your past research? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, 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 so I, I said that I, I joined Corey's lab because I was interested in imaging and behavior and I thought C. elegans was a good system. Um, there was another thing that really got me into it, which was this idea of, um, whole brain imaging. Um, so optics technology has advanced just like a huge amount just in the past five or 10 years, really, um, technology for imaging neural activity in living animals. 
Um, and, and it's gotten to the point where people can actually, in certain animals, image the entire brain, every single neuron at single cell resolution. And uh, C. elegans was kind of the original model for this because their brain is so small. Um, and I heard about people doing this. Ali Pasha Vaziri, who you know, is one of the pioneers in, do, in doing too. this. You should definitely get him on to talk about this. Um, <clears throat> um, I saw him give a talk and I was like, this is incredible. We can see the whole brain. Um, and, and it turns out, as, as is always the case when someone like me, who's like kind of an amateur at, at, uh, at real biology, joins the lab, you realize that what you actually want to do is slightly different from what you originally thought. So I don't do whole brain imaging, but I do do imaging of dynamics and networks of neurons in the C. elegans brain. And that, that's kind of the stuff that I'm really excited about now. How many, how many neurons do they have? So there's 302 in the whole animal. Exactly, precisely that. Number. Precisely 302 in every wild type hermaphrodite C. elegans. The males actually have more because they have some extra stuff related to their mating functions. Um, and in the actual, what people would call the brain of the animal, it's, it's less, it's, you know, 200 or so. And uh, we have very good um, constructs, both on the imaging side and on the genetics side for, for directly observing activity in these neurons. Um, and it's kind of the perfect um, venue to study what I think are very interesting questions that are being studied in mice but where the complexity of the mouse brain is, is a real barrier and we don't have that barrier in C. elegans. Right. Um, so there's a particular um, area of research that's very active now in the mouse field, um, which, is, which is studying kind of global dynamics in the brain. So with the advent of a lot of these new imaging technologies, you can actually image large chunks of the mouse brain, many you know, tens of thousands of neurons simultaneously. And one thing that people have found that's very surprising is that there are highly correlated fluctuations in activity all across mouse cortex that look like they're, they're a sign of feedback from what the mouse is doing. They're correlated with movements that the mouse is making. Oh, right. And there are parts of the mouse cortex, like the motor cortex, where it's completely obvious that you should see these because that's the part of cortex that's producing the motions in the first place. But it turns out you also see them in sensory cortex where you don't necessarily expect them to be present, where right. the, the parts the, of the brain that we thought were doing something else. We, we thought that, I think I read this paper, you sent it to me actually. I right? did send it to you, yeah. So, <laughs> so that parts of the brain that you would think like, oh, that activity is noise, meaning it's not related to what it's actually doing, um, are actually the artifacts of motion or different sorts of yeah. behaviors. Yeah, so it, it's still pretty controversial in that community what exactly this means. But because there were these early whole brain imaging experiments in, in C. elegans, we know that C. elegans also has this phenomenon, that there is very broadly distributed, broadly correlated activity reflecting actual motor behavior in the brain. And C. elegans, because we can really see everything that's going on, everything that we want to see, it's the perfect um, um, system, in my opinion, to, to try to understand what the role, the functional role could be of these like global dynamics. So that that's the sort of five minute version of, of what I'm working on now. Awesome. Um, and final question is, who do you recommend, who do you recommend I uh, in, try to interview next here? Uh, let's see. So, so we're, we're, we're thinking local people to start with mostly, yeah. right? New York city, people who are like uh, possible that they would respond to my email. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, um, you know, there are great 
neuroscience theorists uh, all over in New York City. Um, both Columbia and NYU um, have really good groups. So if you could get any of those guys, I highly recommend. You know, Does like it... Larry Abbott at Columbia is really is really great. Um, there's a guy at NYU who I actually don't know, and now I'm realizing that I'm going to forget his name. Um, oh, you know what? I'll suggest somebody else. Um, there's a guy in Princeton, um, his name is Andy Leifer, who does whole brain imaging in C. elegans. Um, his work is really, really cool. Um, and the guy at Columbia, whose name is escaping me, came from the same lab as Andy. Um, they both did their PhD with um, R.V. Samuel at Harvard, who's in the physics department, but works on, he works on C. elegans and also on imaging and larval drosophila. Um, so the guy at NYU is working mostly on drosophila larva imaging. Um, they're doing really cool work. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, thinking of more local people, um, you know, the labs at Rockefeller that are doing um, work that's really interesting, both from the experimental and the theoretical point of view are, um, you know, Gabby Maiman's lab yep. that works on, on navigation in fruit flies and how navigation signals are worked out in the fruit fly brain is doing really cool stuff. Um, there's actually a grad student whose name is also Chung Lu. It's spelled differently from the postdoc in the Barman lab. Um, he just came out with a, just like a really beautiful paper on how fruit flies represent what direction they're moving in, in their brain. Um, so that's some really cool stuff. Um, Vanessa Ruda's lab is also a Drosophila lab. Um, they've done a lot of work on odor coding that I think is really, really interesting, like how odor information is represented in the fly's brain. Um, that's really cool stuff. Um, and then um, on the non-neuroscience side, the other field of biology that I always considered getting into, which I now am not, you know, probably ever going to do, but where I think there's a really cool interaction between theory and experiment is, is embryonic development. Um, um, because it's an, it's an example of um, a field where there's like, complex systems that are amenable to sort of interesting mathematical modeling and where there's actually like not only applied math, but real physics, you know, mechanical forces and things pushing and pulling on each other and diffusing around that are really important. Um, and, and the two labs at Rockefeller that are doing stuff in that area that I think is really cool are, um, Amy Shire's lab. Um, so they work on, on kind of the role of mechanical forces in, in development in the chicken. I, I owe me. Oh, I owe Amy Shire an apology because I promised a math model that I never delivered on. Oh, I never got oh, back good. to her yeah, about yeah. back when yeah. I was a freshman. You, you, looking you for can maths. apologize to her by having her on the podcast. <laughs> I said, "Oh yeah, I think I know how I can model that." Uh, and I, then I got completely um, off with other things. And the other lab is is Ali Breedenloo's lab. Um, they work on um, uh, differentiation of human embryonic stem cells, or in some cases, induced pluripotent stem cells. In any case, stem cells. Um, and they actually work with their exigia. Um, um, so they're working on using some theory, but really actually mostly sort of sophisticated quantitative experiments that it, where it helps to have theory people involved in designing the experiments to study how human stem cells um, differentiate and form patterns that would eventually turn, in, turn into tissues. Um, and they, they've done just like a ton of really awesome stuff. Um, directly imaging dynamics in in embryonic stem cells and eric eric has uh 
a couple postdocs and a couple grad students working at Ali's lab um, um, who I think would be good, good podcast guests. Great. So yeah, those are my suggestions. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to and or watching this podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, all the different platforms. If you're on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. All these things build engagement and tell the YouTube algorithm that this video is worth pushing to a wider audience. Every like, comment, share, and subscriber really counts, especially here in the early phases of the podcast. Sharing this podcast with people in your life who love science and problem solving is seriously the best way of supporting us, and thank you so much to those of you who already have. Finally, I have begun to assemble a Discord community where I host watch parties every Monday night at 7pm PST, 10pm EST, after which point I hang around and talk with the audience and answer questions. If you join the Discord, it is small enough now that you have a solid chance of getting in personal contact with me. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed making it and look forward to putting out the next one. Signing off, Mason Hargrave.